Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we are back with the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac for another Keywords episode. Today, we are going to do two brand new ABA keywords. This time, we're going to start with malignant hyperthermia, and then uh, the second is hepatic disease. But we are going to do, um, since that's a fairly broad topic, today we're going to just cover the topics for hepatic disease that are on the basic exam, and then we will come back another day and do the topics in that area that are on the advanced exam. Uh, but before we start, I do have a couple fun announcements, or actually just one, which is that we are going to have our first ever live ACRAC podcast. It's not till April, so you'll be hearing about it for a while with more details to come. But on April 24th, that's Friday, April 24th, we are going to record a live ACRAC episode right here from Johns Hopkins. And if you are in the area and you're interested in coming, then you will have that opportunity. Um, Again, more details to follow. If you're interested in coming and you'd be able to make it, it'll be at 6 p.m. on April 24th. We'll probably come around 5.30 p.m. and then we'll start recording at 6. And if you're interested in being a part of that, uh, then please send an email to ACRAC at ACRAC.com and let us know. There won't be a charge to come, but we will want to try to get a feel for who is interested in coming. Another quick fun note, we are now on Spotify. So if you like to get your podcast on Spotify, you can find ACRAC there. Check it out. All right, let's get back to the show. Jillian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Great. Thanks for having me back. So we're going to start with malignant hyperthermia? Yes, because right. I don't know. I just uh, I like it a bit better for <laughs> whatever reason. I just do. So the ABA content outline for the exam pretty much says malignant hyperthermia. And then the two subtopics are genetics and pathophysiology, but I think they want you to know everything about it. Interestingly enough, it's listed under common complications. Mm. I wouldn't call it common, but it's one of those that if it happens, you really need to know how to treat it. So if you actually look on open anesthesia and see what's tested, uh, the biggest one, the highest yield topic is perioperative management. And that makes sense what to do in the case of malignant hyperthermia. That was tested in 2013, 2015, 2016, 2017, 
2019. It's almost guaranteed question. Other tested topics are associated disorders, signs, which could be kind of put in with perioperative management, uh, testing for it, and then the treatment of it. And those topics were tested in 2012, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2019. So still a very relevant topic, Mm -hmm. almost guaranteed to see one. If you're interested in the sources that I use today, first, I use Barish. I love it. It's an excellent chapter. But also, they reference MHouse, the www.mhaus.org, which stands for the Malignant Hyperthermia Association of the U.S. It's a fantastic website. There's also an app and a hotline. So if you ever get in the thick of things, you can give them a call, download the app. It walks you through everything that you need to do. And it's interesting because Barish even references the website. So it's a very high-yield website if you ever want to kind of poke around. And then I get my questions mostly from Anesthesia Hub, which I've told you that before. Um, So in order to do this, we need to kind of roll back in time and go back to MS1 and review some of the basics of muscle contraction, which made my brain hurt a little bit, Uh, with the key point being that calcium ions control muscle contraction. It's kind of the key point of all of this. But when you want to lift a weight or move your leg, your brain sends a message down your motor neurons, and that triggers the release of acetylcholine into the motor end plate. And then that acetylcholine initiates depolarization within the sarcolemma, which is spread through the muscle via the, do you remember? T. Oh, starts with a T. I, I do not remember. <laughs> T-tubules. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, it's like MS1 all over yeah. again. And then the depolarization of the T-tubules causes the sarcoplasmic reticulum to release stores of calcium ions via the rayanidine receptor. And it's interesting because the rayanidine receptor both senses and releases calcium. So it's a calcium-mediated calcium release receptor. And calcium, as we know, plays a pivotal role in initiating muscle contractions. And I don't think we need to know all about the actin and myosin and the uh, contraction of the muscle, but that calcium plays a pivotal role. And as long as there's calcium in the sarcoplasm and as long as there's ATP available to drive the cross-bridge cycling of the muscle fiber, it will continue to shorten. So muscle contraction usually stops when the signaling from the motor neuron ends and you get repolarization of the sarcolemma and the T-tubules. You close the voltage-gated calcium channels and the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and then the calcium ions are pumped back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which causes the tropomyosin to reshield or recover the binding sites on the actin strands. And that's how it stops. So what what happens in malignant hyperthermia is typically there's a mutation on the rayanidine receptor, which is located on the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And that receptor, as we said, is responsible for releasing calcium. So what happens in MH is a trigger will bind that receptor and bypass all those steps and go right to calcium release, and it doesn't stop. So you just have this massive flood of calcium into the cell, and you get unmitigated muscle contraction. So now you're in this hypermetabolic, hyperdrive state where you have your muscles contracting all over, you get a depletion of ATP, dramatic increase in oxygen consumption, production of CO2 and heat. Uh, The depletion of the ATP stores is going to lead to membrane integrity failure, and your cells are going to start leaking contents, especially potassium, creatinine kinase, myoglobulin, and all those are going to cause issues for you. And it's inherited usually in an autosomal dominant pattern. So that's just your brief review, and then we'll go more in detail doing questions. And I divided them into three major categories, preoperative, intraoperative, and postop. So that's kind of how I was thinking through it. So key point one is actually like testing for malignant hyperthermia. Uh, So which of the following statements best describes testing for susceptibility to malignant hyperthermia? A, live skeletal muscle cells are required for testing. B, the MH gene is located on the X chromosome. C, muscle biopsy is appropriate in children younger than one year 
control. D, a normal serum creatine phosphokinase concentration eliminates the need for muscle biopsy. E, succinylcholine is used to stimulate muscle obtained on biopsy for MH. Yeah, so it's, so it's a good question. A lot of good stuff in there, right? So we know it's actually caffeine testing um, that they do, or you may know that. If you do, then you know it's not succinylcholine right. that's used. Um, it, again, I happen to remember that it is actually a muscle biopsy with live muscle um, cells that are required. And so that if you know that, then you'd know the answer is A. You could probably uh, you know get rid of some of the other ones too. If it's only on the X chromosome, you would expect that it would not be uh, – that you'd have mostly um, men with it. And, um, but it's autosomal dominant, so then, like, everyone would have it, oh, right? Oh, that's true. So the X, autosomal yeah. dominant. Because um, then the men would have it too with the girls with XXXY, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So that uh, – we would expect it to be much more prevalent. But can it, it can still be autosomal dominant and sex-linked, right? It can be on the X chromosome and be autosomal dominant. There yeah. are some, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but uh, as you said, it would be much more right. prevalent. Um Muscle biopsy is appropriate in children younger than one year. I, you know, again, that just doesn't sound good. Yeah, right, um, exactly. I don't want my, uh, you know, eight-month-old getting a muscle biopsy. Um, and uh, normal concentrations of serum uh, markers would not rule it out. Right. And it's still the gold standard is this muscle test. It's hard to do. From what I've read, there are only five centers in the country that actually do it. So you'd have to get there. Your insurance would have to pay for it. It's not an easy thing. But they do. They take skeletal muscle, usually from the thigh, the vastus lateralis, and then you expose it to halothane and caffeine, and they measure how tightly it tenses up. And if it's much more than average, then you're considered positive. It's got a high sensitivity. It's 100 percent sensitive with a 78 percent specificity so there is now genetic testing and they do look at different mutations in the reanidine receptor and you can mm. actually like map out the whole receptor there are six kind of major forms that we know about that cause the autosomal type of malignant hyperthermia it is recommended recommended that if you're going to do the genetic testing to do a panel of 28 different mutations or have the whole thing mapped out for you but it's hard to test because you can still have like random point mutations and then there are actually there's another receptor, a CACNA1, that can also cause malignant hyperthermia, and it's not great sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So they're still developing it. It sounds like it's up and coming, but right now for the test, the gold standard is still the halothene caffeine contracture test. Contracture test, test, yeah. That's a good thing to know. Um, so key point two, and we talked about this in the beginning, is that the defect in malignant hyperthermia is thought to be decreased control of intracellular calcium in muscle. Uh, the sarcoplasm reticulum just lets calcium go and doesn't come back in it at all. So that's the question that you're going to see is malignant hyperthermia is believed to involve a generalized disorder of membrane permeability to A, sodium, B, potassium, C, calcium, D, magnesium, E, phosphate. Right. Yeah, it's just one of those things you have to know. You can't you have to know. Yeah, you know no or you to, don't. No yeah. way to think your way through right. that. Yeah. Just guess C. If, if all this fails, <laughs> guess C. That's, that's always what I say. C for calcium. Exactly. Uh, so key point three, what are the known triggers? So there are two major known triggers for malignant hyperthermia. So obviously the major one is exposure to a triggering anesthetic. Um, so Which that are... would be halothane, uh, enflurane, sevoflurane, desflurane, essentially any inhaled anesthetic other than nitrogen. All the volatiles, right? Yeah. And then one drug, one IV drug that we give. Which is succinylcholine. I guess you give it IM too. But yeah, yeah, so it's weird. It's the volatile anesthetics and then succinylcholine. So 
A 46-year-old man is scheduled for repair of an inguinal hernia. Six years ago, he had an episode of malignant hyperthermia during cholecystectomy. Which of the following is the most appropriate perioperative management? So, like, going into this. So, A, administration of a regional anesthetic. B, administration of dantrolene orally for two days prior to surgery. C, avoidance of all inhalational anesthetics except isoflurane. <laughs> D, avoidance of ester local anesthetics. E, flushing the anesthesia machine with oxygen 10 liters per per minute for a minimum of 12 hours. Yeah, so uh, I think important here, the answer is going to definitely be administration of a regional anesthetic because if you can avoid any... Right, if you can do it, great. great. Yeah. Um, but I think there's some interesting things you can learn from these answer choices. So administration of dantrolene prior, I've seen this come up a lot on questions, yes. and they want you to know that you do not pre-treat with dantrolene, even in somebody who has known MH. So that's, uh, I think, going to be a common wrong yeah. answer. And I think they tried it. I actually do think there are studies out there, and it does no good, doesn't right. help. So we don't do it at all. Right. So that's a big one. Um, uh, what else was on there? So they yeah. avoid all inhalational anesthetics. There's no except. Right. There's no isoflurane. Yeah. There's no acceptance there. I guess you could say except nitrous, um, which is not a I guess, right, yeah, right. But. And then um, you don't need to avoid your local anesthetics, esters or amides. And then for flushing the anesthesia machine, yeah, that is correct, but you don't need to do it for 12 hours. So I actually did look this up just so I didn't say the wrong thing. And it varies from machine to machine, which I didn't realize. I thought it was pretty standard across the board. So depending on the machine, you want to flush 10 liters per minute from 20 to 104 minutes. And then obviously you want to change out the circuit and anything attached and the CO2 canister. And also if you have charcoal filters, you should use them. I know our institution does – I'm sure they're probably becoming more in favor, but it actually negates the need to flush. You only really need enough flush for 90 seconds if you have mm-hmm. those charcoal filters. That's great. So. Uh, some institutions will have a dedicated machine that's never been hooked up to a volatile anesthetic for these cases. Really? So if, if yours does, that's another option. Yeah. Obviously, use that. But if not, then everything you said makes sense. And if you're pushed into it, then Tiva. If you have to, I mean, pushed into doing a general anesthetic and you can't do regional, then Tiva is acceptable right. also. So the next question is drugs considered suitable for patients who are susceptible to malignant hyperthermia include all except A, atomidate, B, nitrous oxide, C, calcium chloride, D, ketamine, E, all of the above are safe. And those are all safe. Yeah, exactly. So key point four, certain syndromes and or disorders are associated with MH susceptibility, and these include King-Denner-Borough syndrome, multi-mini core disease, and central core disease. You just have to memorize them. It comes up time and time again. It's painful. I have to look it up every time. And the other one, and it depends on what you read, is sometimes you'll read that hypo or hyperkalemic familial periodic paralysis may or may not be. Hmm. I don't think they test it because there's not a clear answer, but the MHouse website says that it is. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Okay. Um, so what you'll see is a question like this. Which of the following disorders is not associated with susceptibility to malignant hyperthermia? A, multi-mini core disease. B, central core disease. C, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. E, uh, sorry, D, King-Denneborough syndrome. Yeah, and so as you just said, the a, B, and D, R, C is not. Right. So DMD. So Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, it can be exacerbated by anesthesia, especially if you give succinylcholine, but it's not actually associated with MH. And there were a ton of studies and research done that show that it is its own entity. Uh, and if you have a cardiac arrest in a pediatric patient after administration of succinylcholine, it's most likely due to an undiagnosed Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But it's its right. own thing. It looks very similar because you're going to have all that muscle breakdown and the hyperkalemia and the rhabdomyolysis and all those complications maybe without the um, severe muscle contractions, but it does look fairly similar. Right. And okay. you wouldn't, in theory, uh, have the, the hyperthermia, right? Right. Yeah. It's not a hypermetabolic right. state. Right. It's probably just going to be like a rest. Right. 
So moving on to key point five, uh, which is now we're moving on to intraoperative management. So this is going to include some of the signs and symptoms of malignant hyperthermia and then what to do if you suspect it. So it's a clinical syndrome. It may develop rapidly, but sometimes it can take hours and you may not even see it until the recovery room. The signs, do you remember some? You want to do some of the talking? So, sure, sure. <laughs> so you're going to see, uh, obviously, elevated end tidal CO2, elevated temperature, tachycardia, uh, hyperkalemia, um, muscle rigidity. Right. And I'm cheating because so i got it right in front of me here. So hypertension, respiratory acidosis, metabolic acidosis, myoglobinuria. So that's a common one, like that dark urine, fever. Mm-hmm. Uh if only one of the signs is manifested, the diagnosis of MH is much less likely than if you see two or three. And it can be hard to differentiate between a malignant hyperthermia versus a neuroleptic malignant syndrome, a thyroid storm, and sepsis. Uh, one of the key things is the muscle contraction, mm-hmm. so whether or not that occurs and whether it's sustained. And if you do suspect it, then you're going to treat with dantrolene, 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, and then supportive measures for everything else that's going on. This question comes up year after year, time and time again, which is the most sensitive early sign of malignant hyperthermia during general anesthesia is tachycardia, hypertension, fever, hypoxia, or increased end tidal CO2. Yeah, and it's increased end tidal CO2. People, I think, tend to often think it would be fever because of the name malignant hyperthermia, um, but that is incorrect. And because it is a metabolic disorder, one of the first sensitive signs is going to be an increase in the production of CO2 and the respiratory acidosis. So the next question is malignant hyperthermia and neuroleptic malignant syndrome share each of the following characteristics except A, generalized muscular rigidity, B, hyperthermia, C, effectively treated with dantrolene, D, tachycardia, E, flaccid paralysis after administration of vecuronium. Hmm, that's interesting. So um, the uh, if let's think about the vecuronium one. If you gave vec... Um, you are interrupting the neuromuscular junction, but it shouldn't have an effect on malignant hyperthermia because you're in the cell releasing the calcium. So that's, you're probably not going to see an effect with um, vacuronium in malignant hyperthermia, but you would in um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And that's one of the key ways to actually distinguish between MH and all of these other like hypermetabolic states that you can see under general anesthesia is if you give a muscle blockade if it works or not. If it doesn't work, it's much more likely to be malignant hyperthermia. But interestingly enough, NMS, you can see muscular rigidity, hyperthermia, um, tachycardia. So uh, moving on to the next question, which of the following findings is not consistent with a diagnosis of malignant hyperthermia? A, PC... A PaCO2 of 150 millimeters of mercury, B, a mixed venous oxygen of 50 millimeters of mercury, C, a pH of 6.9, D, arterial oxygen saturation of 85% on 100% FiO2, E, onset of symptoms an hour after the end of the operation. And the question is, which of the following is not Not consistent? consistent, Right. right. And so you definitely can have an elevated CO2. You can definitely have the acidosis. Um, an oxygen saturation of 85%. So, you know, you are using a huge amount of oxygen. Right. It's not because you're not adequately ventilating. It's just this huge consumption of oxygen. Yeah. So that makes sense. Uh, to, that should not be an answer because it could happen. Onset of symptoms an hour after the end of the operation can definitely happen. It's not necessarily immediate. Um, and so that leaves a mixed venous of 50 Right, so a normal mixed venous should be about yeah. seventy. Right. So that's a low mixed venous, and you know that makes sense because again, you're using so much oxygen that. But not consistent. So it says fifty. So it, you would expect the mixed venous to be like twenty. 
So I think that's oh, what they're trying to get at. That it, this is low, but in malignant hyperthermia, you're going to see it like really super low, low, like super low, because you're extracting all the oxygen out. So in hyperthermia, you would expect a malignant hyperthermia, a mixed venous of like 20 to 30 yep. is what that's they interesting. say. That is so it is a little not, low. Yeah. yeah, that's not something that I uh, yeah. have thought about. I would have assumed right. it was low, but not not didn't realize it was going to be right. so extremely low. So the, the answer, like according to Barrish, is mixed venous oxygen tension would be very low. Very low. <laughs> very low. Yeah. Below the threshold. <laughs> right, exactly. All right. All right. So shortly after induction of general anesthesia for an outpatient surgical procedure, a patient develops progressively increasing end tidal CO2, tachycardia, and rigidity. You suspect MH. Which of the following is most consistent with the recommendations for the emergency treatment of MH provided by the Malignant Hyperthermia Association of the United States, which is that M house that I talked about? Mm-hmm. A, treatment of hyperkalemia with calcium chloride. B, dantrolene IV dosing not to exceed one milligram per kilogram. C, treatment of tachy dysrhythmias with calcium channel blockers. D, packing the patient in ice to achieve a core temperature below 36. Right. So there's no reason to make them hypothermic, so you don't need to get them below 36. Um, you uh, do not want to use calcium channel blockers. In fact, right. they uh, don't work. You might think, since this is right. a calcium problem. Right. Well, and they can actually worsen hyperkalemia in the presence of dantrolene. Right. So uh, you, you, that's actually, and that can be tested other ways. I've seen that as, yes. a, you know, right. oh, what's a good treatment for malignant hyperthermia? And one of the options is calcium channel blockers, which you might think makes sense since it's a problem with too much calcium, but that's not correct. So that doesn't work. We just said before that dantrolene should be dosed at 2.5 megs per right. kg, so one is not enough. And you may need even more than 10. You just keep going. You keep going, yeah. right. And so that leaves a treatment with uh, calcium chloride for yeah. um, hyperkalemia, which is the regular treatment or at least right. first-line right. treatment for hyperkalemia. Yeah, and I actually didn't like the way that answer was worded because you're not really treating hyperkalemia with calcium chloride. It's to prevent the effects on the heart. So I didn't really like that it was like for the treatment of hyperkalemia. It's like to prevent a bad thing from hyperkalemia. But no. Yeah, and I think... (laughs) I'll give it to them. (laughs) I understand what you're saying. I think that that we we do teach, right, that the first thing to do in hyperkalemia is to give calcium. You're right. It's not going to lower the calcium, but it will stabilize the cardiac Right, right, exactly. Okay, so the next one. So near the end of a three-hour colectomy, the surgeon complains that the patient is not relaxed. Two twitch monitors placed at different locations show zero twitches on a train of four. The blood gas is reported to be a pH of 6.9, a CO2 of 82, a potassium of 4.6, and an acetate of 4.6. Most appropriate action would be A, administer morvecuronium, B, administer bicarbonate, C, administer succinylcholine, D, increase minute ventilation, E, administer dantrolene. So they're getting at uh, what could be malignant hyperthermia there, a patient who is uh, relaxed but rigid, um, or by relaxed, I mean has had vecuronium, has no twitches, and yet is rigid. And so concern for malignant hyperthermia, you would give dantrolene. Right. And even though it's not like the perfect picture and they're not showing you the high CO2 and the high temperature, it is a profound metabolic acidosis. And I think the key here is if you suspect it, give it. Right. It really doesn't have a lot of downsides, dantrolene. Right. So if you really think that that's what's going on, there's no downside to starting to give it. And right. it. We drill it here in our Sim Center. Have you ever reconstituted dantrolene? It actually comes in a powder, and then you have this, I think it's saline, sterile saline or water. Oh, gosh. And I know it matters which one it is, but you have to mix it. It physically takes time. So right. if you suspect it, you really should start mixing it up and right. get a tray in your room. Now, it used to be a lot worse because there used to be only these small vials. You had to do right. like 80 yes. of them. Yeah, right now it's bigger. Now at least there's yeah. a bigger vial. Right. 
Okay. Um, so key point six is that masseter muscle rigidity or spasm after administration of succinylcholine is associated with malignant hyperthermia. So the question here is trismus, which is muscle rigidity of the masseter, after administration of succinylcholine IV signals the onset of MH in what percentage of patients? A, less than 50%, B, 50%, C, 75%, D, 80%, E, greater than 80%. Yeah. And so it's actually, you know, I think the trick here is that you think, oh, that must be, and like you just said, uh, potentially associated with MH. And so you'd think it was very common, but it's still less than 50%. Right. It's about 25 to 30%. So, But if you do see it, it's not a bad idea to just either abort if you can abort or go to Tiva. Like just get off your circuit, right. use a amber bag and oxygen tank and hang propofol if you have to keep going. Uh, so that's the key there. Because 20, I mean, 30%, that's still pretty right. high if right. you see it and you don't want to get into a malignant hyperthermia disaster in your right. room. So, so it, it's still a big risk factor, but is not diagnostic. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, so key point seven is that malignant hyperthermia, it can happen in the PACU or the recovery phase of care. So these are the type of questions you'll see there. So a five-year-old boy is anesthetized for elective repair of an umbilical hernia. General anesthesia is induced and maintained with sevoflurane, nitrous oxide, and oxygen via an anesthesia mask. At the conclusion of the operation, the patient is taken to the recovery room and subsequently discharged to the outpatient ward. Before discharge, the patient's mother noted that the urine was dark brown in appearance. The most appropriate action at this time would be A, discharge the patient with instructions to return if urine color does not normalize. B, discharge the patient in three hours if no other signs or symptoms are manifested. C, obtain serum, creatinine, and blood urea nitrogen levels and discharge the patient if they are normal. D, admit the patient to rule out acute tubular necrosis. E, evaluate the patient for malignant hyperthermia. Right. So you want to uh, evaluate for malignant hyperthermia. You don't want to be thrown off by the fact that it's not you know right when they first got the anesthetic. Right, exactly. And it could, it could be other causes, but you really don't want to miss this, and it can start late. So right. if you see that in the pack, you keep the kid, do a pretty extensive workup until you feel 100% comfortable that this isn't going to be malignant hyperthermia. So another question like that. Oh, oh, I thought that was it. That's the last one. Sorry, I thought I had one more. But uh, So in to review malignant hyperthermia, the muscle caffeine halothene contracture test remains the gold standard for testing. The defect is thought to, in malignant hyperthermia is thought to be decreased control of intracellular calcium stores, preventing muscle relaxation. It's typically due to a mutation in the reanidine receptor. Known triggers are the volatile anesthetics and succinylcholine. Certain syndromes and disorders are associated with MH, and they include King-Denborough syndrome, multi-mini-core disease, and central core disease. Clinical signs include hypertension, tachycardia, respiratory acidosis, metabolic acidosis, muscle rigidity, myoglobinuria, and fever. Um, it's on, the diagnosis is unlikely if only one sign is manifested, and it can be hard to differentiate between malignant hypothermia and other hypermetabolic states. You treat with dantrolene 2.5 milligrams per kilogram and then supportive measures. A masseter muscle rigidity or spasm after sucks is associated with MH about 25 to 30% of the time, and that malignant hypothermia can happen in the PACU recovery phase of care. Sounds great. All right. That's a really important topic. Let's move on to hepatic disease. Yeah. So I haven't done an organ system yet, and I thought it was time to push myself a little bit and try to tackle one of these. Because some of the topics are easy, right? Like succinylcholine or a nerve block. They're very discreet. This is a little bit more, what's the word? open. Yeah, wide <laughs> so, open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you look at the ABA outline for organ systems and hepatic disease, you actually have to look at the basic and the advanced because it comes up twice, whereas a lot of topics are actually 
on one or the other, but not both. So for the basic exam, they want you to know about dual blood supply and regulation of blood supply for the liver, the metabolic and synthetic functions of the liver, excretory functions, mechanisms of drug metabolism and excretion, and then the cytochrome P450 system. For the advanced exam, it's obviously more advanced. They want to know about preoperative lab assessments, anesthesia choice in hepatocellular disease or ascites or portal hypertension, uh, postoperative hepatic dysfunction, hepatic failure, hepatorenal syndrome, and hepatic transplantation. Um, So today we are going to focus on the basic. I think it makes more sense to parse it out into two parts. So we'll do part one basic, and then next time we'll do the advanced. Sounds good. If you're wondering what's on the test for the basic, you're going to get a lot of questions about hepatic synthetic function. Uh, That was tested in 2012, 2014, 2016, 2017, and 2018, as well as hepatic protein synthesis, and that also includes synthetic capacity and cirrhosis. That was tested in 2012 and 2015. They asked a lot of questions about hepatic blood flow, so blood supply, regulation, factors that affect it, and then also the hepatic arterial buffer response. And these were tested in 2015, 16, 17, 18, and 19. So that's really what you're going to see for the basic exam. Um, so key point number one is the liver is has a dual blood supply. Do you remember from where? I ha- oh, oh, man, this stretched my my uh, knowledge. Oh, I had yeah. to reread Barish. I was going back. Well, so you've got the portal vein and you've got <laughs> yeah. the hepatic artery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mr. Mr. Smarty Pants. Yeah. Well, you, you got to remember, you do you do OB <laughs> anesthesia. I do, I do yeah. whipples. Right? Right. I, yeah. 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 So the liver has a dual blood supply from the hepatic artery and the portal vein. And so it's aorta, celiac artery to the hepatic artery. Uh, the portal vein is formed by the confluence of veins receiving blood from the entire digestive tract, so from the stomach, spleen, pancreas, small intestine, and colon. The hepatic artery delivers about 25% of the total hepatic blood flow, and but nearly 50% of the oxygen content to the liver is going to come from the hepatic artery. So these are the type of questions you get just about like blood flow. Question one, the vessel-rich group receives what percent of the cardiac output tested year after year after year? 45%, B, 60%, C, 75%, D, 90%. Yeah, probably about 75%. Yeah. So the vessel-rich group receives about 75% of the cardiac output, and it is composed of the brain, heart, liver, splenic bed, kidneys, and the endocrine glands. It This group actually is only 10% of total body weight. So 75% of the blood, 10% of the weight there. Uh, the liver, now this is the next question, is the liver receives approximately what percentage of cardiac output? So A, 15%, B, 25%, C, 50%, D, 75%. Yeah, it's just one organ, but it is known for being a blood-rich organ, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, probably about 25%. Yeah, so it gets 25%. And that's just a factoid that you need to know. Yeah. And they do like to ask those. They like to ask about the bless- the vessel-rich group, what percentage cardiac output, and then to the individual organs themselves. So key point number two is that blood flow and oxygen supply to the liver are regulated to fulfill two separate demands. So the first demand is that the liver needs its necessary energy, oxygen for its own maintenance, right, to take care of itself. And the second is to provide the vital services to the rest of the body. Uh, So circulation is regulated by both intrinsic and extrinsic factors. The intrinsic autoregulation is also called the hepatic arterial buffer response, um, which can kind of confuse me because I expect buffer, like acid-base buffer, Mm -hmm. but it's actually the buffer of blood and like how much is coming from the hepatic artery versus the portal system. Uh, And that intrinsic regulation is most likely regulated by adenosine and uh, the hepatic arterial flow is going to vary with changes in portal venous pressure and there are limits you know like autoregulation has its own limits 
And then the hepatic arterial system also undergoes autoregulation according to different metabolic states. So if you're in like a more hypermetabolic state, ties right in, look at that, the MH. So if you have a decrease in pH or O2 content, if you have an increase in PCO2 of the portal blood, it will promote increases of hepatic arterial flow. And that's because you think, oh, we're going into bad state, the liver has to work harder, it's going to need more blood supply, more oxygen to do what it needs to do. Right. So these are the type of questions you'll see about that. Is uh, Each of the following decreases hep- hepatic blood flow except. So A, isoflurane anesthesia, B, spinal anesthesia, C, hypercarbia, D, mechanical ventilation, and E, PEEP. Right. So we just said hypercarbia will increase blood flow. Right. So that's kind of the clear answer there. Um, and it's hepatic arterial blood flow. I should probably right. state that. So isoflurane um, would uh, dilate. Yeah, right? you get vasodilation, right. so you're going to decrease. Decrease flow, spinal anesthesia, same, same thing. thing. Yep. Uh, mechanical ventilation. Mechanical ventilation. Um, yeah, it's because the positive pressure, positive pressure. It physically squishes your veins, and so you have less blood flow there, and the same is going to happen with PEEP, right? Yep. So hypercarbia will actually increase hepatic blood flow. Yep. And this is a very similar question. Which of the following is most likely to increase hepatic blood flow during general anesthesia? A, addition of PEEP. B, discontinuation of isoflurane and administration of enflurane. C, increased PACO2. D, moderate controlled hypotension. E, subarachnoid administration of morphine. So, we, as you said, we just yeah. kind of went over it right. in CO2 as we Same said. question. Same yeah. question, just in a different, different format. format. Yeah, exactly. And I love how they said discontinue isoflurane and give enflurane. Same thing. It's not going to help you there. Right. And when you do, we don't do it often here. I did a lot more at Columbia, the controlled hypotension. Yeah. Uh, but you will have decreased blood flow. And we right. only ever did it in, like, young, healthy people. But, yeah. Um, so this is kind of a related question. I thought it was it's a good question and interesting too. But the hepatic sinus, am I saying that right? A C I N U S. Asinus, I think. Yeah. <laughs> or is it maybe asinus? it's a sinus? I don't know. I'm not right? sure. That's a good question. I guess I've always yeah. thought asinus, but asinus, maybe it's a okay. sinus. Uh, is roughly divided into three zones that correspond to distance from the arterial blood supply. Which of the following zones is likely to be damaged as a result of acetaminophen overdose? A, zone one, B, zone two, C, zone three, D, all zones. Yeah, it is one zone more than the others. I I do not remember this, and it's probably one of those things you're just going to have to memorize. So the sinus is the functional unit of the liver, and so the hepatocytes that are closest to the arterials are zone one. They're the best oxygenated. So zone one cells are the first to be exposed to blood-borne toxins absorbed into the portal blood from the small intestine. So the zone one is what gets really damaged in your like drug overdoses like acetaminophen, but zone three is the furthest away from the blood supply, so that is actually most susceptible to hypoxic and hypoperfusion injury. And you see those questions sometimes, zone one versus zone three. So yeah. yep. you just draw, like, draw a mental picture, you probably remember it. Great. All right, so we just looked it up, and uh, of course, this is assuming the internet is all-knowing, um, but there is a pronunciation uh, that says it is asinus. So um, tell us if we're wrong. Tell us if we're wrong. It just sounds wrong. Uh, it, it, uh, it does seem like it might be something else, but according to the internet, um, asinus is the pronunciation. Okay. Yeah, and then you'll see it kind of as one of like the answer choices, like in blood flow. So this is an example to that. So a healthy 24-year-old woman is undergoing knee arthroscopy with spinal anesthesia to a level of T4. Which of the following findings is least likely? So A, decreased heart rate. B, decreased hepatic blood flow. C, decreased mean arterial pressure. D, decreased tidal volume. E, hyperperistalsis. Okay. So uh, 
let's go question. Let's go answer choice by answer choice. Decrease heart rate. So you can see that because you're getting to the accelerator of fibers of the heart and a higher spinal level, especially T4, you can start seeing bradycardia. Right. Decrease hepatic blood flow. We've already talked about. You can definitely about. get that. You get the yep. vasodilation. Right. Decreased decrease. mean arterial pressure. You definitely get yep. that from the sympathectomy. Decreased tidal volume. You actually don't get that because your diaphragm is working fine and your tidal volume is mostly diaphragm. You're not going to have the extra big breath, so it feels weird, but right. tidal volume is fine usually, hopefully. And then hyperparistalsis. You definitely get that because you've knocked out the sympathetic system, so now all you get is the parasympathetic, and that's why so many women get so nauseated. Yep. It's like a combination of hypotension but this hyperparistalsis that you see. Yep. So that leads us to key point three is that there are broad array of tests available to assess the multiple functions of the liver. Collectively, they're called liver function tests, but many do not assess a function of the liver, but are rather markers of liver cell injury or dysfunction, such as AST, ALT. So I kind of divided them into four major categories of liver function tests. One is the indices of hepatic damage, so looking at your AST, ALT, LDH. Indices of obstructed bioflow, so alkaline phosphatase, bilirubin. Indices of hepatic synthetic function, so albumin and your PT indices of hepatic blood flow and metabolic capacity. So there are kind of four major categories in and of that. And they're, they love these type of questions about like synthetic function in the liver. So here's an example of a question you'll get about LFTs. A 65-year-old man has a history of alcohol abuse. Which of the following preoperative serum concentrations would provide the best assessment of synthetic hepatic function? A, albumin, B, alkaline phosphatase, C, bilirubin, D, globulin, E, transaminases. Right, so albumin is something made in the liver. Right. So that's what they're really looking for. The other ones are really more like markers of degradation, and they want to make sure that the liver is working. So if you want to make sure the liver is working, you're usually looking at albumin and one other thing, which we're going to get into the next question. So a 50-year-old man with alcoholism and jaundice is scheduled to undergo umbilical hernia repair. An increase in which of the following best indicates impaired synthetic hepatic function. So A is a prothrombin time. B, serum alanine aminotransferase concentration. Oh, they spelled it out for you. <laughs> C, serum albumin to globulin ratio. D, serum alkaline phosphatase concentration. E, serum bilirubin concentration. Right. So the prothrombin time yeah. is something we look at a lot because the liver is making uh, some important um, factors that lead to coagulation. Right. So the prothrombin time, it's a sensitive indicator of hepatic dysfunction because of the short half-life of factor seven. Most of the coagulation factors are present in quantities that actually far exceed requirements for normal coagulation. So even mild to moderate hepatic disease, you might not see a prolonged PT. But if you have an like a, acute exacerbation of a chronic disease, or like really severe chronic disease, the PT can be a useful prognostic indicator. And you probably know this better than I do being an ICU guy, but um, Barish says that a progressively increased increasing prothrombin time is usually ominous in patients with acute hepatocellular disease. It suggests that you're really going to have like acute hepatic failure. Yep. It's not a good thing to have an elevated prothrombin time. Yeah. Um, so here's another one. In the adult liver, oh, sorry, in the adult comma, the liver is the primary organ for A, hemoglobin synthesis, B, hemoglobin degradation, C, factor eight synthesis, D, antithrombin three synthesis. Right. So it does make antithrombin three. Yep. It makes uh, four different factors uh, as well as protein CNS, but not uh, factor eight. Yeah. So the liver produces most of the coagulation factors with three exceptions, and you need to know these. These are like common, common test questions, and just for your own knowledge. But factor three, four, and eight are the ones not made by the liver. And like you said, it also makes protein C and protein S and antithrombin three. Uh, fetal RBCs are produced exclusively by the liver, but in the adult, 80% of RBCs are produced by the bone marrow, only 20% in the liver. And degradation of blood is primarily by the reticular endothelial system. Remember that? 
Yes, I do. (laughs) So key point four is that drug metabolism is predominantly an hepatic event. So the liver influences the plasma concentration and system systemic availability of most orally and parenterally administered drugs. And through its synthesis of drug-binding proteins, the liver affects the portioning of drugs into its various compartments of the body, so the apparent volume distribution. So when your liver is failing, you don't have good liver activity, it's going to affect a lot of the drugs that we give in terms of how long they're going to last. So, A 70-kilogram, 20-year-old athlete receives nitrous oxide and oxygen, thiopental, and fentanyl, 1.25 milligrams, which is 25 ml. During a knee reconstruction procedure lasting three hours. Postoperatively, he does not awaken or resume spontaneous breathing for three hours. The most likely explanation for the prolonged effect of fentanyl is A, dose-dependent elimination half-life, B, genetically slow biotransformation, C, large volume of distribution, D, presence of an active me- metabolite in high concentration, E, time required for hepatic elimination. Right. So, I, you know, they're probably getting at the time required for hepatic elimination. That's a huge amount of fentanyl. <laughs> That's a huge amount. Huge amount. So uh, yeah. it may be that uh, depending on how long after that dose, I'm not sure anyone would wake up. Yeah. Right. I know. So, you know, I think A is very enticing because the dose-dependent elimination half-life, but the correct term is actually context-sensitive half-life. So it is a good distractor answer there. And the volume of distribution also has to do with the liver. But it is the time required for hepatic elimination. And fentanyl is irreversibly eliminated from the plasma by hepatic clearance. And it does have a long context-sensitive half-time, especially with infusions longer than two hours. So remifentanyl has like a very flat context-sensitive half context-sensitive half-time, but fentanyl, the more you give, the longer it sticks around because the, the liver has to clear it all. Right. And and that uh, term um, is specifically uh, addressing infusions. Yes, So yes, a right. single dose of fentanyl, right. you can't use the term right. context-sensitive yeah. half-time. Yeah. And it doesn't say... I actually took that question to... I thought it meant that he got it as an infusion. Yeah. Because it said, like, during it, it was right. 1.2... 1.25 milligram, 25 ml. So I, over three hours, so I assumed it was an infusion. Yeah. Maybe I was wrong. There. Well, it certainly makes yeah. more sense as an right. infusion yeah. than one time right. goes. Right. Yeah, that would be nuts. Uh, so the next question is the plasma halftime of which of the following drugs is prolonged in patients with end-stage cirrhotic liver disease? A, diazepam, B, pancuronium, C, alfentanil, D, all are prolonged. Yeah, and all of those should be. Yeah, prolonged. so many, many drug elimination half times are affected by liver disease. Uh, it includes morphine, alfentanil, diazepam, lidocaine, pancuronium, vecuronium. All have been demonstrated to have really much longer half lives in patients with cirrhosis of liver. So it's really important to know, especially when you're taking care of patients with liver disease. Uh, next question. This just starts the stem is pseudocholinesterase. A is increased in patients with myasthenia gravis. B is inhibited by glycopyrrolate. C is inhibited by. Pylocarpine D is synthesized by the liver. E reverses atricurium blockade. Right. And, you know, it's a, probably a good guess. A lot of things are synthesized right. by the it liver. It is a good guess, yeah. So I'd probably yeah. go with that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, again, things like uh, glycopyrrolate doesn't inhibit uh, pseudocholinesterase. Neostigmine can. Right. Um, uh, pylocarpine is not something that we uh, give <laughs> as far as I know. Um, and that may or may not. But evidently, according to this question, does not. Um uh, it does not reverse atricurian blockade. Right. Yeah. yeah. So in severe liver disease, you might have decreased production of cholinesterase enzyme. And that's good to know because you need that to hydrolyze ester linkages in drugs such as succinylcholine and ester local anesthetics. So you have to think about your dosing in patients who have liver disease for those two drugs. Mm-hmm. So the next question, compared with a patient without liver disease, a patient with cirrhosis will have A, greater accumulation of vecuronium with infusion, B, more frequent occurrence of phase two block 
block after succinylcholine administration, C, prolonged elimination half-life of atricurium, D, unchanged volume of distribution for pancuronium. Right. So uh, vecuronium we know is dependent upon liver function, right. and so that makes yeah. sense. So you will have a greater accumulation of vecuronium with an infusion because you not, the liver can't break it down. Um, vecuronium actually undergoes about 30 to 40% metabolism by the liver and then is eliminated about 50-50 liver and kidney. So you have to worry about vecuronium in liver and kidney disease. Yeah. Uh, pancuronium, so the volume of distribution will change in liver disease. Uh, atricurium is actually the Hoffman degradation, so that's a good one to use if you're worried about liver and or kidney disease, mostly kidney disease. And then um, the phase two block, that's just a distractor answer if you just didn't know. So the next question is a patient with jaundice who has a minimally elevated AST, markedly elevated alkaline phosphatase, and normal prothrombin time is to receive a muscle relaxant. Which of the following is most likely in this patient? A, decreased intubating dose of pancuronium. B, increased intubating dose of atricurium. C, prolonged duration of succinylcholine effect. D, prolonged duration of vecuronium effect. E, shortened duration of tubocorarine effect. When's the last time you used uh, tubocorarine there? Never. <laughs> um, but as we said... VEC will be prolonged. Yeah. And I like this question because they didn't say flat out that this patient has liver disease or cirrhosis. They gave you a couple of labs. I mean, he has jaundice and elevated AST, but his PT was normal. So remember, we talked about PT having, it usually takes moderate to severe disease Mm -hmm. for that to be prolonged. So just to review the key points here, one, the liver has a dual blood supply from the hepatic artery and then the portal vein. Uh, The second key point is that blood flow and oxygen oxygen supply to the liver are regulated to fulfill its two separate demands. There's the intrinsic autoregulation, and that's called the hepatic arterial buffer response. Uh, Key point three is that there are a broad array of tests available to assess the multiple functions of the liver. Collectively, they're called liver function tests, but many actually do not assess the function of the liver, but are rather markers of liver cell injury. And that for drug metabolism is predominantly a hepatic event. So you really have to worry about drugs in patients with liver disease. Awesome. All right. That was also a great topic. Let's move to the part of the show where we do random recommendations. Jillian, what do you have for us? So I have two. Well, it's all in one category, but two things in one category. It's what to do with your leftover turkey. Oh, nice. What (laughs) do you do with it? So I have two. I made, um, you know, butter chicken, the Indian like kind of curry dish. I made it with leftover turkey and it was amazing. You make it just like, yeah, butter turkey. It was so good. Sounds good. Sent extra with my, my husband took it to uh, work the next day. Nice. And then the other one is there's a dish. It's called coronation chicken. So when Queen Elizabeth had her coronation luncheon, they made this special curried chicken salad, and it is amazing. You hmm. can find it in the New York Times. It's what it's called. It's coronation chicken. And you can use your turkey, and it is the best curry chicken salad, turkey Ooh. salad you'll ever have. Nice. So, yeah. All right. To do with, are... uh, oh, and then turkey pot pie. That's yeah. another one. Yeah. All right. That's great. I love turkey. I love leftovers. <laughs> so if you've got leftovers still, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there so you go. Check it out. I want to start using them up because it's getting, yeah. That's right. All right. My random recommendation is a podcast that my brother turned me on to that's uh, great. It's called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. And it is oh, the Conan. O- funny. It's Conan O'Brien from the uh, of, of old of the um, what was it, the Late Show or the Tonight Show or whatever. You know he, he wrote for the Simpsons for years and years. Did he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was on Saturday Night Live, yeah. and uh, so obviously uh, people know Conan O'Brien. But he now has a podcast called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. It's a lot of fun, and he has interviewed the very first one. He interviewed Will uh, Ferrell, which was very funny. Oh, well, Will Ferrell's hysterical. And then there's a bunch. There's like forty eight, fifty of them at this point. Um, so you can scroll through and pick the comedians you like that he interviews and uh, listen in. It's pretty fun. And we have a listener random recommendation today, 
which is always fun. And if you have a random recommendation, just tweet it at us at ACRAC Podcast or at Jay Walpaw, um, or you can email it at ACRAC at com or let us know on the Facebook group. But the random recommendation, uh, the person didn't want their name used uh, just because they did, said they, they don't they don't want to crave attention, uh, but they did uh, want to point out a couple things. One, Headspace, the meditation app, which I've recommended before, it turns out is free for AMA members. So if you're a member of the American Medical Association, you can get Headspace for free. Uh, so that's just good to know. And then also there is an interesting article in The Atlantic about what they call thankless jobs, and they uh, compare fact-checkers and anesthesiologists as two jobs that are really, really important but don't get a lot of uh, outward uh, praise. And I think that's... Uh, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, it's totally true, right? You know, nobody, hardly ever do you get a patient coming back in general anesthesia to say, you know, thank you to the anesthesiologist. I give myself praise all the time at the end. <laughs> that's right. I'm like, that's did right. you see this lovely wake up we just had here? Exactly. And <laughs> you have to because no one else will. <laughs> you got to be self-motivated. Um, but that's an interesting article called um, something like uh, what fact checkers and anesthesiologists have in common in the Atlantic. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. All right, Jillian, thank you so much. No problem. All right, another great keyword episode. Thanks to Dr. Isaac. Let us know what you thought. Check it out at acrac.com. That's accrac.com. You can leave a comment. And of course, you can also join the conversation on Twitter at ACRAC Podcast, at Jay Wolpaw, and on the Facebook group. All right. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. Oh, and an exciting piece of news. We're now on Spotify. So if you prefer Spotify, you can find the ACRAC podcast on Spotify. If you'd like to contribute to the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. You can, of course, make a donation at paypal.me slash ACRAC. All right. Big thank you, as always, to Kimia Kashkuli, our intern, to Dr. Brian Park for his outlines he makes for some of the shows, and to Dr. Dennis Kuo, who makes the original music for ACRAC. And you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.